This morning we're going to start a new sermon series. It's called Little G Gods. There's an outline in your bulletin. Hopefully somebody handed you a bulletin on the way in. You can follow along with the notes this morning. The passage that we're going to look at is in Romans chapter 1. You can go ahead and find Romans 1. I'll just give you a heads up. It's going to take us a little bit longer than usual to get there, but we are going to get there, and we're going to read it, and we're going to talk about it. We're going to spend eight weeks talking about little g gods. This morning is going to be very introductory, very just sort of laying the groundwork, talking about what idolatry is, what are little g gods, just sort of making sure we're all on the same page. The next six weeks, we're going to talk about specific idols or specific little g gods that may be present in our life. And my guess is that as we go through those six weeks, you're going to be able to relate with a lot of what we talk about. You're going to see yourself in a lot of the the issues we, we bring up, and you're going to say, yes, I know that is a struggle for me, or that has been a struggle for me, or I see how it could be a struggle for me. Other issues, you may come over the next six weeks and say, you know, I don't know that that is a particular issue in my life, but even in looking at those little g gods, there's a warning that you need to hear and I need to hear, and there's a pattern that you'll see just every single week about how we fall into idolatry and how we get out of idolatry, and that's where we're going to end up. Week one, introduction, six weeks, we're going to talk about specific little g-gods, and then week eight, we're going to talk about how we really get rid of them. Now, each week, we're going to talk about turning away from them and repentance and all of those things, but that last message will be focused on how we replace the little g-gods in our life. So today, we're going to start off, we're going to talk about the most famous moral code in the world. We're going to talk about the ten commandments. And this is in your notes, the Ten Commandments. You can find them in the Bible in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. They're found in two different places. Exodus 20 tells of God giving the Ten Commandments and the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Deuteronomy 5 is Moses at the end of his life getting the people ready to go into the promised land, reminding the new generation. You remember the the Exodus generation has all passed away in the wilderness. He's reminding this new generation of what God's law is that they are called to follow. And I just want to start off by reading from the beginning of the Ten Commandments. We're going to read the first two commandments, and this comes from Exodus 20. It's almost word for word in Deuteronomy. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That's command one and two. And they're very straightforward, right? Command one, you will have no other gods before me. Command two, you will not make an image of anything that's been created to represent me. You will not make a a carved image of anything in the heaven or on the earth or in the seas. Nothing. You're not allowed to represent me with any of these created things. And bracketed around those two commands, you see, the very beginning, he says, I am the Lord your God. And he says the same thing to the people at the end in verse 5, I am. The Lord, your God. And Lord is in all caps. That's the divine name. That's the name Yahweh. It's not just Lord as in Adonai, as as in a really powerful person, but it's Yahweh, God's personal name that he revealed to his people. And what he's saying to them couldn't be more clear. It's obvious. 
My name is Yahweh, and I am your God. You have a God. Therefore, you're not allowed to take anything else and put it in my place. And you're not allowed to depict me in any way, shape, or form as if I'm somehow like the creation. Nothing before me, and nothing can you make to represent me. Why? Because I, Yahweh, am your God. Now, for most of us, when we hear that command, we think of people. Usually, for some reason, we think of primitive people, if we're honest, bowing down to statues. So maybe your mind, when you read this, this would be a good place for it to go. You go immediately to Aaron and the people while Moses, Exodus 20, is up getting the law of God on Mount Sinai. Aaron and the people are down below, breaking out in rebellion. And there's this great story where Aaron, it says in the text, takes tools and he fashions this calf and he sets it up for everyone to worship. And when Moses comes down, he says, what in the world have you done? And Aaron's reply is classic. It's what I would say or you would say. We threw the gold in the fire and it just came out. I, I don't know what happened. It was the darndest thing. We don't know how it got here. But they're worshiping a statue. And what's interesting is they called the statue Yahweh. They don't call it cow God, calf God, cattle God. They call it Yahweh. They've put something in front of God's place and they've made an image that God had told them or had just told Moses not to make. So maybe your mind goes there. Maybe your mind goes to other places in the Old Testament. The Old Testament describes many deities. The deity on the left is a statue of Baal. He was the God of heaven or the God of rain, the God of storms. He brought rain on the crops and the people were always tempted to worship Baal. The statue on the right is Asherah. You read about her throughout the Old Testament. The people followed after her. She was sort of Baal's lover. They were sort of a team, and she sort of ran around with him, and they would worship the Baals, and they would worship the Asherahs. There's other deities that I won't put pictures up because they're just a little bit gross, but you get the idea. This is jumping forward to the New Testament. Okay, now we're in the New Testament from the Old. We're talking about Athens. Maybe you think when you read about idolatry, you say, hey, wasn't there a time where Paul went to Athens and he stood in this exact place and he looked around at all the idols in the city, all the idols and all the statues that these people were worshiping. And you remember, they even had one to the unknown, unnamed God because they felt like we got a lot of bases covered here, but maybe we left somebody out and we don't want to offend any of these deities. So we're going to have a statue. It's not going to have a name on it. It's for the God we don't even know about. And they offer these sacrifices and they bow down and they do all these things. So maybe that's what comes to your mind. Maybe it's not even biblical things that come to to your mind. Maybe it's just sort of modern day things. You can go all over China and parts of India and the statue on the left is a Buddha statue and you can find people who worship the Buddha and they bow down to his statue and they would say, oh, it's a little more sophisticated than that, but that's about the gist of it. They bow down to these statues and they offer sacrifices to these statues. The one on the right is a Hindu statue and that is really something else, isn't it? I don't even know how you describe that thing, like a green monkey or something. And uh, Hinduism has millions and millions of gods and goddesses and statues, and they offer prayers and sacrifices and all of these different things. You know, if this is the gist of idolatry, the pictures I've put up on the screen, if that's about all there is to idolatry in the Bible, you and I can just move on to the next sermon series, to be honest with you. 
The next sermon series, by the way, is the book of Exodus. We're going to work our way passage by passage through the book of Exodus. And so you may be saying, well, that sounds way better than this. Let's just jump right to it. But there are a couple of places in the Bible that make you stop and scratch your head when it comes to the issue of idolatry. There's verses that maybe suggest to you and to me that there's more to it than just bowing down to statues. Because my guess is you've never done that. And my guess is as you go through your daily week, you're tempted in lots of different ways, but bowing down to statues is probably not one that is really pressing in your life. Maybe it is. I don't want to make light of that if that is a real temptation for you. It it may be something that you've dealt with depending on your past or your cultural background. But I think for most of us in the United States, it's just not something that we really think about a lot. But then you go to passages like Ezekiel 14 and Colossians 3 in our assumptions are challenged. You can look those passages up later on your own. In Ezekiel, God is speaking through the prophet and he's sending him with a message. And the message in this particular passage is the people have taken idols in their heart. It's not so much a problem that they've got a statue where it doesn't belong and they're bowing down to it, although that's a real problem. But they've taken idols in their heart. So right out of the gate, you look at that verse and you say, well, just because I've never bowed down to a statue doesn't mean idolatry is not a problem in my life. Then you turn to Colossians 3, and Paul, in a very shocking statement for most of us who are Americans, he says, you understand that covetousness is idolatry. Loving money, wanting money, finding your happiness in money, all of that is something that takes place within your heart. That, in its essence, Paul says, is idolatry. You look at those two passages and others like them, and you sort of have to step back and say, you know, I've never bowed down to the green Hindu monkey statue. I'm not really tempted to do that. But maybe idolatry is an issue in my life. I think Calvin was right. He wrote this as he was talking about the people and the golden calf in the story of of the book of Exodus, but he described the human heart as a perpetual factory of idols. You notice he didn't say that with our hands, we're like assembly workers making idols because he understood the problem really wasn't the calf or our hands that made it. The problem is in our hearts. And he understood that in our hearts, there's just this perpetual tendency to put things and people in the place that only God belongs. And it's a tendency that we have to fight. Let's try to answer this question. We're just going to kind of talk around it for a minute to try to wrap our arms around the question. What is a little g God? We'll start with this. A little g God is anything more important to you than God. It's anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. It's anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Let's just think about those one at a time. Anything more important to you than God. You guys are the Sunday morning crowd. You gave up your Sunday morning to come to church. You look great. You got fixed up. Some of you came to Bible study. You went over and above. I realize that you people know the church answer. That if I were to say to you, what is the most important thing in your life? As a church-going person, as a person who maybe you pledge to follow Jesus, you claim to be a Christian, you understand that the answer to that question is supposed to be, God is the most important thing in my life. And if you're honest, and if I'm honest, we all have to admit 
that we all have a tendency to allow other people or other things to become more important than God. We know the right answer. I'm not suggesting you don't. I know the right answer. I'm just suggesting there's something in our hearts that drives us to put other things or other people and to make them more important than God. Anything that absorbs your heart or your imagination more than God. What do you like to think about? What do you daydream about? What do you fantasize about? Where is it that your heart and your mind go when you have a quiet moment or a still moment or a down moment and your mind goes in this direction and as you go in that direction you find yourself thinking, if only I had this. If only I could experience this. This thing would bring me joy and happiness and pleasure. Maybe the flip side of that is where do you go in worry and fear? Where do you go thinking, if I lose this thing, if I don't have this thing or this person, my whole world is going to come crashing down. And it may be that you've built your life around a person or a thing rather than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. Where do you find your identity? Where do you find your purpose? Where do you find your value and your worth? If you find it outside of a relationship with God, what I'm suggesting to you is you found it in the wrong place. You're looking for something that only God can give you, but you're looking in the wrong place. Another thought about little g gods, they can be personal, cultural, or intellectual. We'll just think about those in sequence here. Personal things would be things that you as an individual just have sort of set up in your life as the most important thing. You've allowed a good thing maybe to become an ultimate thing. So here's a few examples of that. Love, family, money, power, achievement, success, your appearance, All of those things are fine in and of themselves, but when you allow those good things to become ultimate things, when you allow those good things that you ought to enjoy and be thankful for to take the place of God in your life, there's a problem. Little g-gods can be cultural. These are things that would be more common amongst all of us. Examples could be national pride. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about a man, a specific example of a man in the Bible who allowed that to become the driving force in his life. It could be technological progress. It could be economic prosperity. It could be individual freedom to do whatever you want to do, to define who you want to be. It could be social change and reform. All of these things in and of themselves are good and they're fine and there's a place for them. But when you allow it to become the driving force in your life, there's a problem. Intellectual. These would be all of the isms or all the ideologies you could come up with. And so just a few examples. You could talk about capitalism or socialism or Marxism or Darwinism or humanism or atheism. You fill in the blank with the ism. Any of these sort of big worldviews that fall outside of the biblical worldview could very easily become a little g-god in your life. It could be a source of idolatry. Just a piece of trivia for you. I thought about putting a multiple choice up and making you all vote, but I didn't do it. 
I looked up this week how many times the word idolatry is found in the Bible. And I, I have a software, it's called BibleWorks, and you can type in a word and it'll just instantly give you all these results. And I thought, okay, this will be interesting. I'm going to look up all these results. It's going to take me forever to look through them. So I type it in, idolatry, enter, six verses. It was way fewer than I expected. My expectation is idolatry. That's an issue from the very beginning of the Bible, and it's an issue all the way to the end of the Bible. That's something the Bible talks about a lot. It's only in there six times. A couple of times in the Old Testament, a couple of times in the New Testament, just six. That doesn't mean the Bible ignores the issue or doesn't see it as a problem. The thing in the Scriptures you'll find is that many times when idolatry is talked about, it's not necessarily used with this big sort of put it in red and neon light words, this is idolatry. Instead, in the Bible, little g-gods are things we love, trust, and obey. They don't always come with a big warning label on the top that says, you know, Surgeon General's warning, idol. But they're the things that we love and the things that we trust and the things that we obey. One of the things you find, especially in the Old Testament, is that the Bible describes idolatry as spiritual adultery. And you should go back and read through Ezekiel if you've never read through Ezekiel. There's things in Ezekiel, I don't care who you are, they'll make you blush. As the prophet tries to get your attention and explain to you, this is what your idolatry is like. It's akin to adultery in the worst form. It's loving a lesser thing instead of the ultimate thing, God. Things we love. The Bible also describes it as things we trust. Where do you look to for your comfort and your security and your peace? What is it in your life that you think will make you secure? It might be an idol. It might not be God. Things that we obey. What determines your day-to-day life? The schedule you keep, the places you spend money, the habits you have, the routine you go through on a regular basis. If you're like me, you know it's so easy for things other than God to have the center of our life and everything else to revolve around Him and to allow other things. They may be good things, but they're lesser things to drive our lives and to set our schedules and to control our spending. What is it that you obey? Six times you find the word idolatry. But from Genesis to Revelation, you find the Bible describing people loving and trusting and obeying things other than God. And at this point, let me just acknowledge something that may be running through your brain. Some of you may be sort of sitting there thinking, you know, what's the big deal? I know what the right answer is. I'm supposed to put God at the center. I'm doing my best to do that. You know, it's not like I'm an axe murderer. It's not like I'm a terrorist trying to blow people up. It's not like I'm hurting children or advocating that it's okay to hurt children. You know, it's not like I'm robbing banks or anything. It's not like I'm really doing anything that bad. Maybe I have some things out of whack in my life, some some priorities that aren't exactly right. What's the big deal if I'm struggling with the little G God? It is a big deal. 
It's a big deal because when God sat down with his people and he gave them a law that should govern the way that they live, the very first things out of his mouth are, you cannot put anything in my place. Nothing. And you cannot pawn some created thing off or an image of a created thing off as if it were me. Don't slap my name on something that you've made and then pledge allegiance to me. Nothing in front of me and no image of me. I am the Lord your God and I brought you out of Egypt. It's important to God. And the reality is this. Every single person on this planet, man, woman, boy, girl, old, young, rich, poor, everyone, everyone will love, trust, and obey something. Everyone will love, trust, and obey someone. You're hardwired to do it. You may turn inwards and love, trust, and obey yourself. You may turn outwards and love, trust, and obey money. You may turn in a million different directions, but you will love and trust and obey someone or something, and that someone or something is your God. And if you're loving and you're trusting and you're obeying someone or something other than the one true God, the Lord who brought his people out of Egypt the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life for sinners, if you put something else in that slot, it doesn't matter how many times you profess to be a Christian. You've totally missed it. You've totally missed it. It matters. This is something we're going to talk about almost every week. This is the first fill in the blank on your outline this morning. I need you to understand that little g-gods always disappoint, they never deliver, and they always destroy. They always disappoint, they never deliver, and they always destroy. And this is the great irony of idolatry, the great irony of little g-gods, is we set it up in our mind, in our heart, and we think, if only this, then happiness, joy, security, comfort, pleasure, whatever, The worst thing that could ever happen to you is that God gives you what you set your heart on. The little G-God you're chasing. The idol that you think will make you so happy. Because when you get it, if you get it, you'll realize that little G-Gods always disappoint. They never deliver. And they always bring destruction into your life. I know this illustration has been way overused by preachers, but I think it's a good one. So I'm going to use it. A lot of you have read or you've seen the Lord of the Rings movies. One of the central plot devices in the Lord of the Rings is the ring of power. And it's this one ring that is more powerful than anything else in all of Middle Earth. And the person that has that ring has immense, incredible power. And the ring bearer can do many, many great things. But the ring bearer also finds himself or herself turning in on himself or herself. Caving in on himself or herself. The ring bearers always think, if I just had the ring, if I just had this one thing, think about how much good I could do. There's people in the story, they want to have the ring because they want to liberate slaves and set them free. That's a good thing. There's other people in the story, they want to have the ring because they want to defend their homeland from the attack of the enemy. Another good thing. There's people in the book and in the movie, they want to have the ring because they want to bring justice on the wicked. A great thing. But what they all find when they bear this ring and they wear this ring is that it destroys them from the inside out. That's a great picture of what an idol does to you. 
You set it up in your life and you think, if I only had this thing, if I could only get this thing, if I could only get to this point or achieve this thing or have this person or whatever, then things would be good. And what you'll find is that every single time, little g-gods will bring destruction into your life. They will disappoint you and they are powerless to deliver you. Look at Romans 1. There's no passage in the Bible that describes this more clearly than Romans 1. We're going to read verse 18 to 32, and I'm going to point out a few key thoughts before we wrap up this morning. Romans 1, verse 18, you follow along as I read. Paul says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. In the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is forever, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations, relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. There's a whole lot of things you could pull out of that passage. I just want you to see four key truths about this issue of idolatry or little g-gods. The first one is this. People reject the truth about God revealed in creation. That's clear from what we just read. No one gets to plead ignorance. No one gets to stand before God on the last day when he exposes the things that we really loved and trusted and obeyed. No one gets to say in that moment, I didn't know. Because Paul says, you did know. Look at the text. Verse 18. Men suppress the truth. 
verse 19. This truth is plain to all people. Verse 20, you see God's attributes, his power and his divine nature in what has been created. Verse 20, we're all without excuse. Verse 21, left to ourselves, we fail to honor God and fail to thank God and our hearts are darkened. If you keep reading into Romans chapter 2, Paul takes the argument even further and he says we all have a conscience and our conscience bears witness against us. We know right and wrong and we deliberately turn away from it. It's built into us. It's built into creation and we all reject that knowledge. We reject the truth about God revealed in creation. We claim to be wise but we're actually becoming fools because we reject the truth about God. Secondly, idolatry is worshiping the creation over the creator. Verse 23, we take the glory of God and we cash it in for images of birds or animals or creeping things or you could just write in the margin any other good thing that you allow to become an ultimate thing. Family, power, Love, national pride, economic prosperity, appearance, another human. You fill in the blank. Any created thing, anything that is not God that you put in God's place, that's what you've done. You've exchanged his glory for something that is part of the creation. Number three, frightening. Sometimes God gives people over to their idolatry. Sometimes he gives them what they think they want what they think will make them happy. Verse 24 says God gave them up. You circle that verse and you draw it down to verse 26 and it says God gave them up. You circle it and you draw it down to verse 28. God gave them up. It's one of the most frightening verses in all the Bible. Be careful what you chase because God just might let you get it. It's the old line, be careful what you wish for you just might get it. And in this case, God just might give it to you. And if that happens to you, what you'll find time after time after time after time is that that thing that you are chasing will always disappoint you, it cannot deliver you, and it will always bring destruction into your life. Last idea, number four, worshiping little g-gods always leads to unrighteousness. And we read through the list. You don't need me to read it to you again of the impurity and the dishonoring and the the dishonorable passions and then the long list that begins down in verse 29. You read those verses, it almost sounds like Paul's describing life in the United States in 2017. Like he had a, a looking glass. He could look into the future. And it's a reminder. He wasn't just describing today. He was describing life then. There's nothing new under the sun. People chase after idols. They chase after little g-gods. And every time you do that, every time a person does that, it leads to unrighteousness. That was true in Paul's day, and it's true in our day. And God's thoughts about everything in that list has not changed. There's some people today, they want to be cute with passages like this, and they want to say, you know, we still think these things are bad, but we're going to now say these things are okay. And it's just worth reminding them, that in and of itself falls under verse 32. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. The list hasn't changed. And the reality hasn't changed that following and worshiping and serving and loving and trusting and obeying little g-gods always leads to unrighteousness. To end, let's just say this. There are three responses 
And I thought about that this week. I, I wish I could go back and change the, the word there. Maybe we could say there are three outcomes, three possible outcomes in your life or in my life when we recognize these little G-gods. Outcome one is sorrow. Sorrow. This is going to be the outcome if you sit in here and you say, that's all great, but I still have this thing and I'm going to chase it and I'm going to let it be the center of me and I'm going to let it consume me. I'm going to set my heart and my affections on it. One of these days you're going to get it and you're going to realize it wasn't what you thought it was. It can't deliver you. It will disappoint you and it will destroy you. And you'll feel sorrow in that. And then, in your folly, there's a possibility that you just turn to another little G-God, something else in creation, and you start to chase that. And you're going to get it, and you're going to realize, well, that didn't deliver on what I thought it would deliver on. Well, that didn't last like I thought it would last. And you just sort of go on this sorrowful quest, chasing one idol after another, one little G-God after another, and all that is in that road, all you'll find at the end of that rainbow is sorrow after sorrow after sorrow. Second possible response, let's call it despair. This is what's going to happen when you get to the point in your life where you realize there is nothing out there in all of creation that's going to satisfy you or bring you joy or complete you or bring you fulfillment, right? This is the the syndrome of the celebrity who scratches every itch and chases every whim and they come to the end of it and they say, what's the point? There's nothing out there. Just this last week, I read about another superstar NFL quarterback at the top of his profession, at the top of his career, And he walks out of the best moment in his entire career and his words to himself are, I hope that's not it. I hope that's not all there is because it's not enough. And it's possible that you reach the point in your life where you just stop chasing and you just fall into a pit of despair and you say, what's the point? I've looked for happiness here and there and everywhere and I can't find it. I've chased after this little G-God and that idol and I put this at the center of my life and none of it's worked, so what's the point? The third option or the third possible outcome is I hope where you land and we'll just call it repentance. Repentance. Repentance is where you change your mind. That's what the word literally means. You change your mind about this issue of idolatry and little g-gods. And you realize all of these things I've put at the center of my life, they cannot compare or compete with the one true God. It happens when you come to the point in your life where you realize these things and these people that I'm chasing are only bringing destruction into my life. And you turn from chasing created things to the one true God. Paul describes this just before the passage that we read. If you look at Romans 1, he says this in Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, there is a righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul's offering you hope this morning. 
He's not just trying to paint a, a bleak, black, dark picture of how worthless you are and how worthless I am. But he's trying to expose our hearts. And he's trying to show us how we chase after so many things in life that we think will make us happy other than the one place where you can find it. And he says, look, there is a salvation available, and I'm not ashamed of this gospel. People think that it's foolish. People think that it's outdated. People think that it's silly. They think it's childish. But he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel where God provides salvation and righteousness for those who humbly acknowledge their need for it. For those who turn away from all of the little g-gods that we try to follow and chase after and turn in faith to the one who was crucified and who was cursed and who was struck down for our idolatry. Paul says you don't have to earn that righteousness. You can't earn that righteousness. You receive it as a gift when you trust in Jesus. That's sort of a spoiler alert for the end of the series, by the way, when we talk about how do you replace little g gods in your life. You put Jesus at the center where he belongs. He's the one that you love. He's the one that you trust. He's the one that you obey. Let's end with prayer this morning. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for a passage like Romans 1 that exposes us. Father, we know that in our hearts we are prone to chase after so many foolish, silly things that we think will make us happy, that will make us safe, that will make us loved. Father, we pray at the beginning of of our eight weeks together that you would help us to see these things as as what they are, as idols, as little g-gods, as gods that are powerless to save, as things that will always disappoint us, that will never have the power to deliver us, and that will always bring destruction into our lives. Father, I pray for the folks in this room, and I pray that already you've begun to convict them of the things or the people that they've placed at the center of their lives. And Father, I pray that you would move our hearts toward you. That you would change our desires. Father, that you would draw us to the truth. That our hope would be centered on Christ and Christ alone. And Father, we're going to sing about that this morning. I pray that even as we sing it, you would make it true in our hearts. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.